Let's go ahead and look at Luke's Gospel, chapter 12. And we begin this morning in verse 13. And let us begin. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentiful. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years now. So relax, eat and drink and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasures for himself and, not, and is not rich towards God. As Jesus is in Jerusalem and he continues to be confronted by the religious Pharisees with one uh, point or another, trying to discredit him before the final day that he hits and uh, uh, reveals himself to all in the sense that he allows himself to be crucified on behalf of all mankind. Individuals are now coming to him and this individual came to him as one would come to a rabbi in that culture and asked that rabbi to settle a dispute that would be, you know, um, it would be something that the Mosaic law speaks upon. But this individual doesn't appear to appeal to Jesus and say, can you settle this for me? He tells Jesus what he wants Jesus to do. Tell my brother to give me his uh, half of his inheritance. Most likely we have a scenario here of a younger brother uh, jealous and coveting that which the older brother has received on behalf of his inheritance. The Old Testament tells us that if two sons were born, one younger and one older, the older one would receive a double portion of the inheritance to signify that he also carries the birthright of the family with him. The younger brother appears to have wanted to uh, absorb the, that law and says, no, I want half of what he has been given and, uh, and tell him to give that to me. And Jesus refuses to get into such an argument. It was unbiblical. It was contrary to the Mosaic law. And he doesn't engage in that individual dispute, but what he does do is begin to draw out the real issue within this man's heart, and that is the issue of the sin of covetousness. Coveting is a sin that we in the United States of America don't really consider sin anymore. We lessen its, um, 
its impact by using another word often synonymously with that, and that is the word greed. These individuals who covet after something that someone else has means that they long for with great longing to have and possess what someone else has to the point where they obsess about it. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a material piece of possession. It can be a relationship. It can be a person. It can be anything. And Jesus wanted this man to know that he was so preoccupied with obtaining treasures here on this earth that he was bankrupt when it came to his treasures that were stored for him in heaven. And Jesus wanted to refocus the conversation. He wanted to redirect it. And he does so by bringing forth a parable that truly, I believe, provokes our thinking to know and to understand what the true priority is, and that is our soul. You know, the Bible makes it clear that what is the profit of man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? And he says here very clearly to this man, if you notice with me, in verse 15, he says, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist or is not defined or is not identified by the abundance of his possessions. One thing we can understand here in the United States of America is the identity created by the materialism that we do collect. And that we are suckers for branding. You know, to the point where we'll even go and find knockoffs that look exactly like that brand, but pay half the price for it, but fully allow everyone to believe it's the real deal, right? I grew up in the, I was in the business world in the 90s, and I know what it was like in the 90s where people were absolutely following one another in the material possessions in which they bought. And in the business world, you are identified by the material possessions that you have. People used to talk about their desires to move into areas like Inverness and Barrington around here simply so they could state that they live in Inverness and Barrington. I lived across the street from Inverness. (laughs) That's about as close as I got, you know. When it came to their cars, I was in that period of time where everybody had to have a Lexus. I don't know if you remember that, but the Lexus... I mean, oh my goodness, everybody had to have a Lexus, you know. I had a, what I would call an inexpensive Lexus called a Toyota. And people would truly, you know, they would have to have the watches and the clothes and so forth. Some of you may remember in the 90s, there were these sweaters that were four or $500 for a sweater. They were called tundra sweaters, if you remember them. They had bright colors on them, and Bill Cosby made them famous before he went to jail. And, uh, you know, uh, and I'm going back some. But everybody started wearing them because everybody knew of them. And, oh, he's wearing a tundra. Oh, is that a tundra? And then when you get together at parties, is that a tundra? Everybody knew it was, you know. And nobody ever asked me about my Coles, you know. Yeah, this is a authentic Coles right here, you know. What do you think? Yeah. 
We all know that materialism, many, many tried to derive their identity and see who they were in and through what they possessed. And Jesus said, don't do that. Don't even go there. That is such a faulty, faulty standard in which to compare yourself by. This man had no clue that what he was doing was, he was so preoccupied with the material possessions of this world that he was storing up nothing for himself in the way of reward or treasures in heaven. And Jesus made it clear, he said, even if this rich man who was blessed one year to the point where the barns in which he currently had were overflowing with excess, instead of that man considering giving that food away or blessing others or you know, doing something along those lines which would have given him treasures in heaven, he decides to tear down the barns he has and buy bigger ones. That was another phenomenon. Do you remember the number of people? Well, we just need a bigger house. We've got so much stuff, you know. And now we're completely the opposite of it where the, minimalist, you know, the minimalists are now, you know, looking to downsize even further. And some of them are happy with, a, you know, a 50-foot square foot house, you know, those little tiny houses that people are making for themselves are no more than a shed, you know. And they're, they're perfectly happy. Dean and I, we drive through Barrington to come to church every Sunday. And for a while there, when people were buying those houses, they'd buy the houses, but they'd be empty. You could see inside. Not that we were peeking through the windows or anything. Uh, <laughs> But they couldn't even afford the furniture in some cases. And it was amazing to me what people would do to present themselves in this way and yet be bankrupt towards God. And so this man, after you know, accumulating everything that he accumulated, building the bigger barns, he then says something to himself. He says, oh, soul, Now we can kick back. Now we can relax. Now we can just eat, drink, and be merry and and, and just enjoy life. And, And God said to him, you're so foolish. You fool. And the word fool there is not just an individual in this case who knows what is right and doesn't do it, which it represents in most cases. But in this particular context and this particular Greek word, it also carries the idea of stupidity. Meaning you're not only foolish, but you're stupid. And that man's soul was required of him that day only to find and to discover that before God he had nothing. And this led Jesus to now address what he knew was going to be a key concern of his disciples. This illustration, this encounter with this man set the stage for Jesus now to address what he knew was going to be a future concern of his disciples. One thing we have to understand historically is that the disciples in whom Jesus chose were fishermen, a tax collector, and so forth. These were hard-working individuals. Specifically, those who were fishermen, blue-collar guys. And these guys knew that unless you got your uh, butt out of bed in the morning and hit the boat 
and went out fishing, the nets weren't going to fish themselves, right? And that he was going to get paid or his family was going to be fed based upon the number of fish in which he caught that day. Nobody was going to do it for him. He needed to go out and to produce to allow himself the uh, economics to provide for his family daily. That was ingrained in their DNA. So now Jesus is commissioning these men to go and to serve him wholeheartedly, walking away from their trades that they have been indoctrinated with since the time that they were boys. And of course, the question that they were going to ask of Jesus and of themselves is, well, how then do I provide for myself? Because I know that if I don't do it, it's not going to get done. It's very interesting that many who decide to work after their, their retirement are individuals that had to work their entire life to meet, you know, to make ends meet. And it's not that they're not secure in their retirement, but more or less their mindset won't let them rest. The mindset that they have just won't let them kick back. And Jesus knew that if his disciples weren't, if he didn't address this situation with his disciples, that this was going to nag at them and possibly tempt them to covet what others have. And he certainly knew that this was going to create anxiety within them. Because again, it was going against the grain of their nature. And I think we can all see that, right? So he turns to his disciples in verse 22. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, and what you will eat, nor about your body, and what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. For he says, consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap, and they have neither storehouses nor barn, yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? He wanted his disciples to be able to walk by faith, trusting in the promises of God towards them, specifically in this case for their daily provisions. Give us this day our daily bread, as he taught his disciples how to pray. Walking by faith with the Lord is a very difficult thing for many to do. For example, it is easier for some to believe in God than to believe God. And when I talk about faith, I really want to start using in its place the word trust. A trust that is so secure that allows me to weather the storms of uncertainty because of the unfailing trust that I have in my Lord to, that He will provide according to the promises in which He has made to us. That I trust the Lord so deeply and greatly 
that even though my circumstances would tell me otherwise, I am going to look past those circumstances. I'm going to look through those circumstances and I'm going to trust the Lord. That's where he wanted them to come to. Now that doesn't happen overnight. It comes as we walk and grow in our faith in Jesus Christ. I'm still learning this lesson. I am still growing in this daily. But I will trust, I, 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 I will say this to you, I, I truly believe that I trust him more today than I ever have before. And it's because, you know what, each and every time that I have, he has always been faithful to do what he says he's going to do. Without question. We can put our faith and trust in a large bank account, a particular career or job, a material possession if we feel that that's uh, able to uh, merit the trust that we want to give it. But all of those, in my mind, pale in comparison to God. Even if I were to have a million dollars in the bank, if there was a financial collapse in the United States, which we've never experienced, have we? that million dollars could dissipate quickly. And even if I put that million dollars in my mattress because I don't trust the banks, if we do have an economic collapse, the paper that the money is printed on is more valuable than the money itself at that point. I can never store for myself enough food to allow myself to feel content with how much I have. Even if I go to Costco and I buy a five-gallon bucket of mayonnaise. I don't know why you would, but I see that it is now offered, and it's just like, why? You know, I, I remember when Dean and I first got our Costco card, and we're walking around there, and we're like, this is bigger than our refrigerator, this thing of mayonnaise, you know. It's not enough, is it? I could never eat it fast enough. It would, go, it would spoil before I could ever uh, do that, you know? And it doesn't matter what I possess because anything that I possess here on this earth can be taken away from me, can't it? And this is what Jesus was saying. He says, don't worry about the things that rust or the things that moths can eat or the things that can be stolen from you. Keep yourself occupied with storing for yourselves treasures in heaven where rust and moth and thieves cannot get at them. Now, of course, the Bible says that we are to work to provide for ourselves. God says we are to be responsible with how we conduct ourselves here on this earth in the manner of economics and and parenting, and a husband and wife, etc. But ultimately, we have to allow God to be God. And we have to trust Him. And the more, and I, the more that Dean and I grow in the Lord, we are starting to really, really, really appreciate it, that if God doesn't provide it, then we don't need it. Now, we think we do, but he sees from his perspective that that's not really a need. And that if God is in it, then he'll provide for it. 
And I would believe in my heart that he wanted the disciples to come to that point so that they could ward off the temptation of covetousness with contentment. And they would allow that contentment to guard their heart and their mind and saying the Lord will provide for us the needs in which we have and we therefore need to be about his business. So many Christians today are distracted because they are continuously trying to fill their barns. And even after they fill them, they then tear down those barns and try to make bigger barns and fill them even more. I cannot tell you how many men that I know who have worked so hard their entire life to provide for themselves a comfortable retirement, and then yet when they got to that point of retirement, their health had failed and they couldn't enjoy it anyways, and the money that they did have went to helping them you know, with their medical needs. I've had at least two gentlemen tell me that they would do it completely differently knowing what they currently know now and spend more time in, with less than trying to continuously gain more. But for the disciples who were going to carry the gospel on after the ascension of Christ, he wanted them to see past this life. He wanted them to move from a temporal perspective to an eternal one. He wanted them to have full assurance that God was going to provide for them. And here in our text this morning, he uses the uh, example of a raven. In Judaism, a raven was considered one of the most foolish birds there was. Because what a raven would do is wait for something to be killed and then pick the carcass of that thing that was killed where other birds used to go around storing up for themselves, creating nests and putting things away and so forth, the raven just sat around and waited for something to happen. And yet God said, I even take care of this guy. How much more will God take care of you? And which of you, verse 25, by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life. If then you are not able to do this thing that is, that is small, then why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow and they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Today, we have an epidemic of anxiousness sweeping through our nation, our society. So many people struggle with anxiousness, worry, fear, the constant sense of being overwhelmed. And Jesus said to his disciples, I don't want you to grow anxious in the idea that you don't have enough to sustain you. I will provide for you when it is needed for you. I want you to trust me. I truly believe that what overcomes anxiousness is faith. For he will address his disciples here and say, oh, you of little faith. However, though, today let us understand that God uses anxiousness to help conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. Because I think I read somewhere, for 
you know, in uh, Romans, for all things work together for good, right? Even the anxiousness in which we experience. Anxiousness is created when we get our eyes off of God and onto the problem, or even worse yet, onto ourselves. It is at that point that we become anxious and we're unable to move forward or we uh, become so overwhelmed and so forth. And yet the Bible shows us that God works through us and in us through those periods of anxiousness to allow him to show himself strong in our lives. Today, when we parent children, I've noticed that many parents have chosen the path to remove all items or circumstances that would cause any degree of anxiety within their child's life. I think they're doing a disservice. I think that we have to allow our children to go to work through those things. So allowing God to prepare them for the next issue that they are eventually going to experience. I think that we don't allow God to work in these things and we feel that we know better and we begin to remove it. And I think that this is why so many young people struggle with anxiety. Not the only reason, but I think it is a reason. Instead of asking them to work through it and you walking alongside of them as they do as a parent. I think we are too quick to swoop in and try to remove that thing. Okay, then you don't have to do that. Okay, then we, you know, you don't have to do that either. You know, okay, then, and, and what we do is we create this false reality for them, stating that what's going to happen, that every time that they are anxious about something, what God is going to do is remove it. But that's not what the Bible says, does it? Paul went on to expound upon this, and he says, Be anxious for nothing. Never promising that the situation, the circumstance, or the event that's causing the anxiousness is going to be removed by God. But he rather than says, in all things through prayer and supplication, make your request be known to God in thanksgiving, and God will give you the peace that surpasses all understanding to do what? To work through the anxiety. To get past it to the other side. To allow God to show himself strong. And he was writing to people who were on the verge of losing their life for the gospel's sake. But he didn't remove those things. He allowed them to work through them. Now, of course, as parents, we need to use discretion, don't we? And I have to admit, you know, Autumn's here today, that we often had to allow her to walk through some of these things. And I will tell you that in the last three years of allowing her to walk through some of these things and being stretched more than I could ever tell you how much she's been stretched, do you know what I see in her now? A mature young lady who has grown in her faith in Christ because God works through these things. And I believe that often we are a little too quick to try to remove these things instead of working through them with our children, helping them grow from it. And that's what he says here. The anxiety is going to come. But what good is it, he says? It can't add one 
span to your life. There's debate if he's talking about you can't add one inch to your height or one day to your life. But notice what he says here. As he continues on, he says very clearly in verse 28, after speaking of the lilies and once again reassuring them, he says, but if God so clothed the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith, or of you of little trust? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things. And your Father knows that you are in need of them. He says, instead, seek His kingdom, and these things will be added unto you. Again, no promise of the circumstance being removed, but the promise that God will be through the circumstance with you. And to resolve this, and to help them resist the temptation of covetousness, and to let them overcome the anxiety that wells up within them, because they've gotten their eye onto the problem, and they've taken their eye off of the Lord, they've gotten their eyes onto themselves rather than keeping the eyes onto the Lord, just like Peter, as he took his eyes off the Lord, as he walked on the, on the water, the moment he did so, he began to sink. So God says, Jesus gives them three things to reassure them at that moment. Number one, when you are feeling anxiety-ridden, being torn up inside, being ripped apart up inside, number one, your God knows what you're in need of before you ever ask, right? So your circumstance and the situation in which you find yourself is no surprise to God. He is right there with you. And he is asking you to trust the promises of his word to you to see you through that trial. And in it, that trial is often used by God like a refiner's fire upon a person. And walking through the trial... We see that on the other side of that trial, God has done a work in us. But number one, what keeps me confident is to know that God is there with me and He knows what I'm in need of even before I ask, number one. Number two, keeping their eyes on Jesus. If it were a mathematical equation, it would be always to include the nomenclature of X, God. Whatever I'm faced with, whatever difficulty I'm experiencing, whatever I'm in need of, it looks hopeless from my perspective, from my microcosm of an understanding, but yet to God it's nothing, is it? Keep your eyes on the Lord. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And everything else shall be added unto you. And number three, know that they are storing up for themselves treasures in heaven by being focused on the work of the Lord. 
but they are placing their treasures in a place where moths and rust and individuals cannot steal them. And this moved the disciples and allowed them to do what God had therefore called them to do. I believe that things are going to get more insecure before they become secure in the return of Jesus Christ. I believe that walking by faith and trusting Him is not going to be an option any longer. It's going to be a necessity. Now you can worry and fret and panic, but Jesus says that does you no good. Trust me. That's your choice at that moment. Dina said something to me the other day, and I don't think I'll ever forget it. As we were faced with some concerns, and we had been praying about them diligently for months, and it looked like all things had, all the doors had closed and so forth, we were in a situation where we were growing impatient, frustrated, me, not her, she would never do that. And the Lord just spoke to her one morning and she said, just take it from worry to worship. Just worship me. And the Lord reminded her that it was a choice. We can worry or we can worship. And we can praise him even though the prayer hasn't been answered yet and we are in need of it. And knowing that he provides those things that we are in need of and if he doesn't, then we're not in need of it. She shared it with me and she asked and she said, I believe that we just need to worship and praise him for whatever he decides to do next. And I said, no, I'm going to be mad. No. And we stopped and we prayed again. And the very next day, God answered that prayer. See, but he allowed us to go through that. He allowed that to happen. As Peter writes in 1 Peter, he allows trials as need be. Because you know what? We're always a work in progress. We can always grow deeper. We can always trust him more, can't we? And I would love to say that we trust him and we grow when things are all perfect and wonderful, right? But it's often when things are the most difficult that I find that I grow the most. So why worry? It doesn't accomplish anything. I much rather expend that energy in worship. And he concludes here in verse 32. He says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure. Notice that. It is your Father's good pleasure to give to you the kingdom. So sell your possessions. Give them to the needy. Provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old. With a treasure that is in the heavens and that does not fail. Where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Why? Because for where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. That's what Jesus was worried about. He knew that in the anxiety and the temptation and the coveting, their hearts would be far from him. 
but when they're relying on Him and trusting Him to provide for them. When they're waiting on Him patiently. When they're choosing to worship rather than to worry. That's when their hearts are with Him. The Lord once said to me, (coughs) uh, He said, in all the years you were growing up, Eric, at home with your mom and dad, did you ever, ever question your dad providing for you and the needs that you have? Did you ever run out to his car on a Friday afternoon and say, Dad, did you bring home the paycheck and are we going to eat this weekend? I said, Lord, I never did that. I always just trusted. I didn't even think about it. I just trusted him. We had a roof over our head and we were not wealthy people by any means. We always had food on the table. There was always cereal in the cereal closet, which was a fun thing. You know, there was always a frozen pizza in the the freezer. I never even thought about these things. And as he just let me sit there and think about it, I just heard him, he goes, if your earthly father was so kind to you and provided for you in such a way that you didn't even have to ask of of him these things, why do you doubt me? You know why? Because it's often not along our timetable. He answers in ways that are not the way we would prescribe him to answer. Sometimes he asks us to wait and oh, we're just so good at that, aren't we? We're very patient people by nature, aren't we? But if I had such confidence in my earthly father, who I adore, how much more confidence should I have in my heavenly father and whom I love with all of my heart, soul, strength, and mind? Don't worry. Worship. And trust him. For you mean more to him than the birds of the air and the flowers of the field. You are more valuable to him than those.